of course, dark matter could be made out of atoms of some sort, but uh, well, you're quite right. Most probably is not. Uh, more likely composed of exotic particles of some kind. The more we learn about the universe, the clearer it seems to be that uh, the stuff that one can show in pictures and astronomy books and observe through a backyard telescope, as fascinating as it is, and our sun and our planet belong to that family, is still only a, a small minority of what's going on. There is this substantial majority, 90 to 99 percent of uh, all the matter in the universe, locally as well as distant parts of the universe, is this dark matter, and it's so we're we're seeing the bright stuff is like the phosphorescence on the top of an ocean wave at night. And then you've got this dark wave underneath it of dark matter, and then in the depths you have uh, this, the, the, whatever it is that's in the vacuum, the cosmic vacuum, whether it's dark energy or whatever. So uh, all that's been explored so far is uh, just this this tip, um, and yet there's no indication that uh, anyone's come to an end of exploration. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, and KFCF in Fresno, and online at www.kpfa.org. Up next is Cover to Cover with Jennifer Stone. There's no way to drop the shadows out of sight today. I found a, a wonderful proverb from, believe it or not, the Middle East. Yes, the Middle Eastern proverb says, When you seek revenge, dig two graves, one for your enemy and one for yourself. I think that covers it. Yes, there's no place like Rome. I... Uh, uh, I had in mind today to tell you all about the pathology of war pontificate, you know, <laughs> about, uh, about the place of hunting in our evolution, about how males for all those millennia hunted and hunted for meat in prehistoric times and how that conditioned them and how we evolved, 
and how all that gave rise to our mythology, our warrior culture, to blood sacrifice. But most people know all that stuff. Read your Barbara Ehrenreich. Perhaps I'll put that together one day. Uh, Never mind, this is Jennifer Stone. And my half hour today, Stone's Throw, I think I'm going to read you a story about uh, an insane veteran from World War One. Yes. First of all, we have to say happy birthday to Nelson Mandela, uh, one of the 20th century's great liberators. He's 88 years old today. Today is his birthday. And God bless his bones. Uh, I got to thinking this week that two entertainers died. Both of them were 88. And I began to contrast and compare these lives. Yes, the uh, two entertainers are Mickey Spillane and June Allison. And I thought, well, now, that is really a contrast. Uh, Both these uh, entertainers used gender roles and gender traits to entertain us to make their living. Uh, Mickey Spillane, of course, wrote those hard-nosed detective stories, Mike Hammer, you know. The ultra-masculine stereotype, the tough guy. Uh, June Allison used the feminine, uh, well, it wasn't exactly a stereotype, but let's call it an extreme uh, feminine sweetness and light. She entertained movie audiences with her angelic persona. Uh, I always saw her as a kind of Brecht ad, you know, the Brecht hair girl. Of course, uh, I personally prefer her to Mickey Spillane, but both of them are somewhat exaggerated versions of the masculine feminine. There are some reports by journalists uh, over the years that indicated that June Allison was quite authentic. That is, that she was what she appeared to be. Truly, truly very shy and vulnerable with her creamy voice and her girl-next-door friendliness and cheerfulness and her straightforward approach to others. Yes, she was the... uh, Straight shooter, yes. Uh, the gal you could count on. My favorite story about June Allison is her humorous response to a male critic, an old uh, beau, I think. He was offended when she endorsed a product. Uh, it's something called Depends. It's a pad or panty, I guess. Uh, it's for use in uh, incontinence. It's a sort of a diaper for older or disabled people. She laughed about uh, this uh, image thing. She said that if she could help people cope with their problems and be more uh, social and mobile, uh, then uh, she was delighted. She said if she bolstered anyone's self-confidence, she was happy to do it. All the reports indicate that her twinkle was completely genuine and that her honesty and humor stayed with her to the end. But about Mickey Spillane, I just don't know enough to judge. He began as a cartoonist, and as far as I'm concerned, that was pretty much where he stayed. I did not care for his work, but I know that he will be mourned by many men, the men who long for simple stories, for shoot 'em ups for uh, 
you know, the sort of response that you don't have to think about, just, just get them. What was it the other day I was listening to the news and I realized that for some, for some combatants, for some people in conflict, killing the enemy is what they mean by freedom. Yes. I guess if you think that killing your enemy is freedom, there isn't much that can be said. Uh, in any case, I want to read you a little bit of Toni Morrison's story because at times like these, it isn't any use to talk about, um, what is that, uh, generalities and about uh, how evil and wicked war is. Uh, that pretty much gets a yawn. What Toni Morrison does is she takes this uh, character, his name is Shadrach, and she lets him personify the madness that results from war. What he does is in order to to keep things under control, he turns uh, death into a ritual. He, uh, how can we say this? Uh, he puts it, he puts it on a certain day of the year. He ritualizes it and turns it into, uh, yes, he mythologizes it. That's what he does. Let's see now. Toni Morrison's Sula is the kind of book that I use. I like to teach it because it's a perfectly constructed novel. Uh, uh, someday I'll have a chance to read some of it again and tell you all about the two central characters, the two women. But let's just read this section about Shadrach, about how he copes with death, with uh, the insanities of war. Toni Morrison's chapter begins, Except for World War II, nothing ever interfered with the celebration of National Suicide Day. It had taken place every January 3rd since 1920, although Shadrach, its founder, was for many years the only celebrant. Blasted and permanently astonished by the events of 1917, he had returned to Medallion handsome but ravaged. And even the most fastidious of people in the town sometimes caught themselves dreaming of what he must have been like a few years back before he went off to war. A young man of hardly twenty, his head full of nothing and his mouth recalling the taste of lipstick. Shadrach had found himself in December 1917 running with his comrades across a field in France. It was his first encounter with the enemy and he didn't know whether his company was running towards them or away. For several days they had been marching, keeping close to a stream that was frozen at its edges. At one point they crossed it and no sooner had he stepped foot on the other side then the day was a dangle with shouts and explosions, shell fire was all around him. And though he knew that this was something called it, he could not muster up the proper feeling, the feeling that would accommodate it. He expected to be terrified 
or exhilarated, to feel something very strong. In fact, he felt only the bite of a nail in his boot, which pierced the ball of his foot whenever he came down on it. The day was cold enough to make his breath visible, and he wondered for a moment at the purity and whiteness of his own breath among the dirty gray explosions surrounding him. He ran bayonet fixed, deep in the great sweep of men flying across this field, wincing at the pain in his foot. He turned his head a little to the right and saw the face of a soldier near him fly off. Before he could register shock, the rest of the soldier's head disappeared under the inverted soup bowl of his helmet. But stubbornly taking no direction from the brain, the body of the headless soldier ran on with energy and grace, ignoring altogether the drip of brain tissue down its back. When Shadrach opened his eyes, he was propped up in a small bed. Before him on a tray was a large tin plate divided into three triangles. In one triangle was rice, in another meat, and in a third stewed tomatoes. A small round depression held a cup of whitish liquid. Shadrach stared at the soft colors that filled these triangles, the lumpy whiteness of rice, the quivering blood tomatoes, the grayish-brown meat. All their repugnance was contained in the near balance of the triangles, a balance that soothed him, transferred some of its equilibrium to him. Thus reassured that the white, the red, and the brown would stay where they were, would not explode or burst forth from their restricted zones, he suddenly felt hungry and looked around for his hands. His glance was cautious at first, for he had to be very careful. Anything could be anywhere. Then he noticed two lumps beneath the beige blanket on either side of his hips. With extreme care, he lifted one arm and was relieved to find his hand attached to his wrist. He tried the other and found it also. Slowly, he directed one hand toward the cup, and just as he was about to spread his fingers, they began to grow in higgly-piggly fashion, like Jack's beanstalk all over the tray in the bed. With a shriek, he closed his eyes and thrust his huge growing hands under the covers. Once out of sight, they seemed to shrink back to their normal size. But the yell had brought a male nurse. Private, we're not going to have any trouble today, are we? Are we private? Shadrach looked up at a balding man dressed in a green cotton jacket and trousers. His hair was parted low on the right side, so that some twenty or thirty yellow hairs could discreetly cover the nakedness of his head. Come on, pick up that spoon. Pick it up, Private. Nobody's going to feed you forever. Sweat slid from Shadrach's armpits down his sides. He could not bear to see his hands grow again. He was frightened of the voice in the apple-green suit. Pick it up. There's no point to this. The nurse reached under the cover for Shadrach's wrist to pull out the monstrous hand. 
Shadrach jerked it back and overturned the tray. In panic, he raised himself to his knees and tried to fling off and away his terrible fingers. Succeeded only in knocking the nurse into the next bed. When they bound Shadrach into a straitjacket, he was both relieved and grateful, for his hands were at least hidden and confined to whatever size they had attained. Laced and silent in his small bed, he tried to tie the loose cords in his mind. He wanted desperately to see his own face, connect it with the word private, that word the nurse and others who helped bind him had called him. Private, he thought. Something secret. He wondered why they looked at him and called him a secret. Still, if his hands behaved as they had done, what might he expect from his face? The fear and longing were too much for him, so he began to think of other things. That is, he let his mind slip into whatever cave mouths of memory it chose. He saw a window that looked out on a river which he knew was full of fish. Someone was speaking softly just outside the door. Shadrach's earlier violence had coincided with a memorandum from the hospital executive staff in reference to the distribution of patients in high-risk areas. There was clearly a demand for space. The priority, or the violence, earned Shadrach his release, $217 in cash, a full suit of clothes, and copies of official-looking papers. When he stepped out of the hospital door, the grounds overwhelmed him. The cropped shrubbery edged lawns, undeviating walks. Shadrach looked at the cement stretches each one leading clear-headedly to some presumably desirable destination. No fences, no warnings, no obstacles at all between concrete and green grass. One could easily ignore the tidy sweep of stone and cut out in another direction, a direction of one's own. Shadrach stood at the foot of the hospital steps, watching the heads of trees tossing ruefully but harmlessly since their trunks were rooted too deeply in the earth to threaten him. Only the walks made him uneasy. He shifted his weight, wondering how he could get to the gate without stepping on the concrete. While plotting his course, where he would have to leap, where to skirt a clump of bushes, a loud guffaw startled him. Two men were going up the steps. Then he noticed that there were many people about, that he was just now seeing them, or else he had just materialized. They were thin slips like paper dolls floating down the walk. Some were seated in chairs with wheels, propelled by other paper figures from behind. All seemed to be smoking. A good high wind would pull them up. They would land, perhaps, among the tops of the trees. Shadrach took the plunge, four steps, and he was on the grass, heading for the gate. He kept his head down to avoid seeing the paper people swerving and bending here and there, and he lost his way. When he looked up, he was standing by a low red building, separated from the main building by a covered walkway.
from somewhere came a sweetish smell that reminded him of something painful. Just to the left of the low building was a gravel driveway that appeared to lead outside the grounds. He trotted quickly to it and left at last, a haven of more than a year, only eight days of which he fully recollected. Once on the road he headed west. The long stay in the hospital had left him weak, too weak to walk steadily on the gravel shoulders of the road. He shuffled, grew dizzy, stopped for breath, started again, stumbled, sweating. Refused to wipe his temples, still afraid to look at his hands. Passengers in dark, square cars shuttered their eyes at what they took to be a drunken man. The sun was already directly over his head when he came to a town. A few blocks of shaded streets, and he was already at its heart. A pretty, quietly regulated town, exhausted, his feet clotted with pain. He sat down at the curbside to take off his shoes. He closed his eyes to avoid seeing his hands. The nurse had tied the laces of his heavy, high-topped shoes into a double knot, the way one does for children, and Shadrach, long unaccustomed to the manipulation of intricate things, could not get them loose. Uncoordinated, his fingernails tore away at the knots. He fought a rising hysteria that was not merely anxiety to free his aching feet. His very life depended on the release of the knots. Suddenly, without raising his eyelids, he began to cry. Twenty-two years old, weak, hot, frightened, not daring to acknowledge the fact that he didn't even know who or what he was, with no past, no language, no tribe, no source, no address book, no comb, no pencil, no clock, no pocket handkerchief, no rug, no bed, no can opener, no faded postcard, no soap, no key, no tobacco pouch, no soiled underwear, and nothing, nothing, nothing to do. He was sure of one thing only, the unchecked monstrosity of his hands. He cried soundlessly at the curbside, wondering where that window was, and that river and the soft voices just outside the door. Through his tears he saw the fingers joining the laces, tentatively at first and then rapidly. Four fingers of each hand fused into the fabric, knotted themselves, zigzagged in and out of the tiny eye holes. By the time the police drove up, Shadrach was suffering from a blinding headache, which was not abated by the comfort he felt when the policeman pulled his hands away from what he thought was a permanent entanglement with his shoelaces. They took him to jail, booked him for vagrancy and intoxication, locked him in a cell, lying on a cot. Shadrach could only stare helplessly at the wall, so paralyzing was the pain in his head. He lay in this agony for a long while, then realized he was staring at the painted over letters of a command to F himself. He studied the phrase as the pain in his head subsided. He looked for a mirror, there was none. Finally, he made his way to the toilet bowl and peeped in. Ah, oh, 
The water was unevenly lit by the sun, so he could make nothing out. Rendering, yes, he took he took his cot, yes, he went to the cot, took his blanket, covered his head, rendered the water dark enough to see his reflection then, there in the toilet water. He saw a grave black face, a black so definite, so unequivocal, it astonished him. He had been harboring a skittish apprehension that he was not real, that he didn't exist at all. But when the blackness greeted him, with its indisputable presence, he wanted nothing more. In his joy, he took the risk of letting one edge of the blanket drop. He glanced at his hands. They were still, courteously still. Shadrach rose and returned to the cot, where he fell into the first sleep of his new life, a sleep deeper than the hospital drugs, deeper than the pits of plums, steadier than the condor's wings. The sheriff looked through the bars at the young man with the matted hair. He'd read through his prisoner's papers. He hailed a farmer. When Shadrach awoke, the sheriff handed him back his papers, escorted him to the back of a wagon. Shadrach got in, and in less than three hours, he was back in Medallion, for he had been only twenty-two miles from his window, his river, and his soft voices just outside the door. In the back of the wagon, supported by sacks of squash and hills of pumpkins, Shadrach began a struggle that was to last for twelve days, a struggle to order and focus experience. It had to do with making a place for fear as a way of controlling it. He knew the smell of death and was terrified of it, for he could not anticipate it. It was not death or dying that frightened him, but the unexpectedness of both. In sorting it all out, he hit on the notion that if one day were devoted to it, everybody could get it out of the way, and the rest of the year would be safe and free. In this manner, he instituted National Suicide Day. On the third day of the new year, he walked through the bottom down Carpenter's Road with a cowbell and a hangman's rope, calling the people together, telling them that this was their only chance to kill themselves or each other. At first, the people in the town were frightened. They knew Shadrach was crazy, but that did not mean he didn't have any sense, or, even more important, that he had no power. His eyes were so wild, his hair so long and matted, his voice so full of authority and thunder that he caused panic on the first or charter national suicide day in 1920. The next one in 1921 was less frightening but still worrisome. The people had seen him a year now in between. He lived in a shack on the riverbank that once belonged to his grandfather, long time dead. Tuesdays and Fridays he sold the fish he had caught that morning. Rest of the week he was drunk, loud, obscene, funny, and outrageous. But he never touched anybody, never fought, never caressed. Once the people understood the boundaries and nature of madness, they could fit him, so to speak, into their scheme of things. On subsequent National Suicide Days, the grown people looked out from behind curtains as he rang his bell. A few stragglers increased their speed, and little children screamed and ran. Ah, <laughs> uh, yet see, as time went along, the people took less notice of these January thirds, 
Rather, they thought they did, thought they had no attitudes or feelings one way or another about Shadrach's annual solitary parade. In fact, they had simply stopped remarking on the holiday because they had absorbed it into their thoughts, into their language, into their lives. Someone said to a friend, you sure was a long time delivering that baby. How long was you in labor? And the friend, friend answered, oh, about three days. Pain started on suicide day, kept up till following Sunday. Was born on Sunday. All my boys are Sunday boys, some lover said to his bride-to-be. Let's do it after New Year's instead of before. I get paid New Year's Eve. And his sweetheart answered, okay, but make sure it ain't on suicide day. I ain't about to be listening to no cowbells whilst the wedding's going on. Somebody's grandmother and her hens always started a laying of double yokes right after suicide day. Then Reverend Deal took it up saying the same folks who had sense enough to avoid Shadrach's call were the ones who insisted on drinking themselves to death or womanizing themselves to death. May as well go on with Shad and save the lamb the trouble of redemption. Easily, quietly, Suicide Day became part of the fabric of life up in the bottom of Medallion, Ohio. That's Toni Morrison's story about a man who goes mad in the war and finds a way to turn the pain and madness of that experience into a ritual, just as we do every Memorial Day. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be gone next week. I'll be back on August the 1st. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. The spirit of dissent and courage was what brought KPFA to life in 1949. The same spirit shared by tens of thousands of listeners, journalists, and programmers keeps KPFA going as a source of alternative media. We thank you, our listeners, for